0: Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that is anti-fascist. Today we have Zoe, Laura, and Hope. Today we're going to be talking about fascism slash anti-fascist organizing and how it intersects with race and gender politics. Patriarchal and racist ideologies are quintessential to fascism and therefore in order to talk about being anti-fascist and how to organize as anti-fascist, we need to understand how these things intersect, which is what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start by reading a quote from a zine that's called Anti-Fascism Against Machismo, Gender Politics and the Struggle Against Fascism. Um, it's written by Petronella Lee and yeah, it's something I want to reference a few times in this episode because it is a good scene. It has a lot of good info in it. I would highly recommend, um, a lot of, so like a lot of modern day fascism starts online. People probably know this through like 4chan, men's rights, um, activist groups and like other weird, like incel internet groups and stuff like that, which is referred to as the MRA to white nationalist pipeline. So this quote is addressing that phenomenon. The quote is, the alt-right advocates not only for male supremacy, but more specifically for white supremacy. Sexism rather than racism is the gateway drug that has led many to join the alt-right. The basic idea that women are getting too out of hand is the patriarchal common denominator, and it aligns perfectly with male rage against social justice activism, which in turn paves the way for white nationalism and white supremacy to gain foothold. So, right. So this isn't to say that like gender is a more prominent issue. It's saying that These things are so deeply intertwined that white men who find these internet groups because they hate women so much are also like, yeah, white supremacy. That sounds good too. Mm -hmm. Um, And as um, a Latinx activist, Anna Marie Tijoux, I think is how you pronounce the last name, um, has famously said, we cannot think of a feminism and anti-patriarchy without anti-capitalism, without anti-fascism, without anti-racism, and without class struggle." So, yeah, um, I think one thing for me that uh, is, like, complicated, right, in these conversations is that if we're talking about the white supremacist um, and, like, U.S. definitions of whiteness, I don't really fit into that in the sense that um, I'm both Jewish and Middle Eastern. However, I do pass for white in more instances than I do not and, like, recognize that, um you know, white privilege still, like, benefits me in a lot of ways. So I think that's something, too, right, with, like, how the U.S. views race as this thing that is, like, really black or white, Haha, like, pun intended. But it's, like, you're either white or you're not. And there's no room for, like, the nuance of, like, different cultures, different ethnicities. Like, there's much more to it than those things.
1: Well, and especially when we're thinking about fascism, you know, obviously – like, one of the more famous historical events involving fascism is the Holocaust, right? Um, and so I think when we're thinking about fascism, it is important to understand these nuances within white supremacy because, you know, Hitler was also a white supremacist in his view of, like, Aryanism, right? Um that looks differently in the united states you know like you were saying zoe you can walk through life in a way that's very very different from like black people in america
0: yeah i think it's like complicated too like i would never if like a black or brown person calls me white i would never be like well actually like who cares um so yeah it's like just kind of a complicated thing that i am you know always working through
2: Yeah. uh, And I've been thinking about this a lot, um, identity and how people are perceived and the roles that we assume that different groups are playing. And, um, I think one of the things we see happening when we talk about fascism and anti-fascism is that there's just a whitewashing of anti-fascist movements, um, and anti-fascist actions and positions in our history too. Um, and even now, like with the protests, you know, you hear a lot of this like counter narrative in the mainstream media, where it's like, well, the the black protesters were peaceful, but then Antifa came and smashed things up, and so like the the assumption there is like Antifa is all white people, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. which I think er- has a lot of you know, admittedly, in leftist movements, we don't have a lot of black representation, but that's like a whole For many sure. other separate yeah. podcasts. The assumption that um, is
0: also like that the black people protesting are pro fascism. Like, what's the other
2: right. option? <laughs> well, I don't even think that most most people putting, like, consuming the media are really thinking about it as anti-fascism. They just hear right. anti-fascism like this, like, they conflate it with, with anarchy. They just think it's like this, like, skinny white male boogeyman kind of a thing. That's how people have talked about it with me. Yeah. Um, but I think, but that's part of why I think, you know, in order to, like, to not, we shouldn't always be looking at this as like Black Americans d- in the light of like being victims because that sort of furthers this like white savior complex that on the left, many people are guilty of. And so part of what I wanted to do in this podcast is like recenter or just like reiterate some of what the history of Black Americans fighting fascism has been and like that there is there is a historical precedent there. So I found this article um, from the Milwaukee Independent and I'm just going to read it because I thought he put it really well in july 1943 one month after a race riot shift detroit vice president henry wallace spoke to a crowd of union workers and civic groups and he said we can't fight to crush nazis nazi brutality abroad and condone race riots at home those who fan the fires of racial classes clashes for the purpose of making political capital here at home are taking the first step towards Mm Nazism." um and so then the pittsburgh courier which was an african-american newspaper at the time Praised Wallace for endorsing what they called the Double V campaign. Um, and so then the paper launched this campaign, and it became a rallying cry for Black journalists, activists, and citizens, where they were really looking at fighting fascism both abroad and racism at home. And they saw it part of the same movement. I guess my my main my main point was just to make sure we are explicit about acknowledging Black Americans' contributions to anti-fascism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I mean like speaking of, I, I wanted to bring up uh, one of my favorite anti fascists, Angela Davis. Um and Yay. yes, I think um <laughs> because we're we wanted to kind of talk about the intersections of race, gender, um, and fascism, Angela Davis is like one of the most prolific writers on intersectionalism. But, like, she doesn't always talk about it in those words, of course. Um, But she really weaves a lot of these things together. And um, I wanted to specifically talk about this one passage because she not only weaves together um, gender, race, and... um, fascism, but she also links together trans rights and sexuality stuff. Um, So I thought that I could read um, from her book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Um, And, you know, uh, as a reminder, we're starting an abolitionist reading group, and she writes a lot about abolition. So in this time, you know, we've been releasing episodes about abolition, why that's important. And like, I think what I'm about to read is about is is tied to abolition as well. She says, The point I'm trying to make is that we learn a great deal about the reach of the prison system, about the nature of the prison industrial complex, and the reach of abolition by examining the particular struggles of trans prisoners, and especially trans women. Perhaps most important of all, and this is so central to the development of feminist abolitionist theories and practices... We have to learn how to think and act and struggle against that which is ideologically constituted as, quote, normal. Prisons are constituted as normal. It takes a lot of work to persuade people to think beyond bars and to be able to imagine a world without prisons and to struggle for abolition of imprisonment and the dominant code of punishment. And we can ask ourselves in that context, Why are trans women, and especially black trans women who cannot easily pass, why are they considered so far outside the norm? They are considered outside the norm by almost everyone in society. And of course, we've learned a great deal about gender over the past decades. I suppose just about everyone who's in the field of feminist studies has read Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. But you should also read Beth Ritchie's most recent book, an amazing book called Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence, and America's Prison Nation. And specifically look at her account of the New Jersey Four, four young black lesbians who were just walking around and having fun in Greenwich Village but ended up in prison because they defended themselves from male violence. This violence was further consolidated by the fact that they saw themselves represented in the media as a, quote, lesbian wolf pack. We see here, we see that here, race, gender, sexual nonconformity can read to racist bestialization, which is an attack, as one of my students, Eric Stanley, points out in his dissertation, not only to the humans, but to the animals as well. Snaps snap snap snaps <laughs> i just really wanted to read that one because i think you know we can understand that we have different ways of exerting privilege and different ways of experiencing oppression and that doesn't mean that we can't fight for the same things um And I really feel like being anti-fascist and being a prison abolitionist kind of go hand in hand. Um, And I love how Angela Davis really talks about that.
0: Yeah. So another thing that I wanted to talk about is um, like the use of white women in fascism and white supremacy and how white women often uphold fascism and white supremacy. Um, so fascists also often use, like, these notions of purity and the need to protect white women as a reason for inciting violence on people of color. Um, this has happened throughout history, like, by colonizers during lynchings um, for a lot of, like, xenophobia, um, anti-immigrant stuff. And the idea is, like, that men of color specifically are, like, a danger to white women and they must be protected at all costs. Um, and as we know, the people arguing these things do not actually give a shit about women or feminism. This is also similar rhetoric that we see used when it comes to like trans bathroom bills, Um, Mm -hmm. right? Of like cis men and cis women, but like thinking of this notion of like the white man, that's like, we can't have like trans people in the bathroom with like pure innocent women. And it's like, right, they don't actually give a shit. They just know that this is an effective strategy. And it does get white women to, like, work with them on some of these things. Yeah. I was just going
1: to say um, this w- this is also, like, a, a particular um, dynamic that is really pervasive in, like, woven into U.S. history, particularly with the film um, Birth of a Nation, which was screened at the White House at the time, um, but essentially glorified the KKK members as heroes of the story and um, like the whole storyline was essentially like showing a predatory black man um, trying to I guess trap a uh, innocent white woman and she ends up like throwing herself off a cliff instead of being touched by him. Um, But this, like, specific narrative of, of, like, black men as violent versus, uh, like, towards and, like, predatory towards white women is, like, specifically, like, similarly to what we talked about the other week about, like, how, oh, the Satanism episode, how the Satanic Panic was literally the Catholic Church's way to cover up all the priest rapes that were happening at the time, like, Priests raping little boys. Um, This was like a specific perversion of all of the um, sexual violence that was happening from white men to black women. Yeah. But anyway, I I I didn't want to like like it. I just think it's like such a pervasive cultural thing specific like, you know, that has been really, really pushed as a narrative um, from from white men to essentially cover up their bullshit.
2: I was gonna say I just wanted to be really clear here too and acknowledging that not only do white women often uphold fascism but they benefit from it as well and I think we're seeing that in this kind of like Karen storm 2020 that we're yes. now we're like <laughs> um you know there it's not it's not really the case so much that there is like a, a white man that's making these women do things like you know call the police on a black man who's birding, um, but they like these white women have internalized so much that this is an option they have that this is a way that they have leverage, right, um, and control. And so I do think it's important to really acknowledge that like we're we are not just like victims. Oh, for, for sure, for sure, fascists, for sure. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. But I think I'm. I mean, there are, like, these two, um, like, big tropes with it, which is, like, one is, like, white women as damsels, um, and also, like, the way that white men view, um, women as property, so it's, like, Uh. you know, they want to, like, protect white women from, like, you know, being able to escape their, like, grasp, um, and yes, like white women do benefit from these systems and uphold them in a number of ways as well.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, in some ways, I almost miss when Hillary Clinton was running for president because there was just so much video evidence of that specific thing <laughs> over and over again all the time. Um Yeah, no, and and like the fact that we know that it's like what is it fifty three percent of white women voted for Trump? It, I don't know,
0: something. It was a lot, yeah. So it's just like yeah, I was gonna bring that up too. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, and
2: there's, I think we there's a lot that could be said about both the tears and the fears of white women that are really oppressive and weaponized. And some of that, as you were saying, does come from when when you're property and you're protected as property and then you're dealing with fascism where you have state violence. Of course, like the police are there to protect property. And if you're property, they're going to protect you. Yes. So you are you're part of that system. But I also think since we're women and since two of us are on this episode are white women, I just wanted to like specifically call out and acknowledge we have a lot of work to do.
0: And also this week, I just
2: am like, I'm exhausted with white women this week oh yeah i'm
0: always exhausted with white women (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) but yeah but so there's a really good quote from the zine that i mentioned that i wanted to um read which kinds of talks about like what these things mean for leftist feminists so she writes the ready-made options presented to us leave much to be desired liberal feminism fundamentally lacks the teeth to address our current political climate leading to a dead end of permitted marches, electoral campaigns, and pussyhat politics. On the other hand, anti-fascism is plagued by machismo, leading to a highly reductionist understanding of struggle and the glorification of hyper-masculine activities above all else. Anti-fascism doesn't have to be this way. We can do better. Mm. Um, Which I think also touches on like, Hope, what you were saying about the kind of, like, white male washing of the anti-fascist movement, which is never what the anti-fascist movement has looked like. There have always been people of color and women and queer people um, involved, but it's, like, we glorify very very specific actions that, like, favor white men.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also a strategic, um, kind of, counter-revolutionary tactic to keep people divided so that you have like okay we'll let you do like some pride related things and when there's a black activist they have to be doing like pro-black things Mm -hmm. and women are doing pro-women things and we haven't been very good traditionally about acknowledging this all is under the umbrella of anti-fascism yeah totally yeah um i don't know if um either of you have seen this in the news yet but it just happened at a protest yesterday in milwaukee i'm so tired of milwaukee being in the news for bad things yeah same (laughs) um, with buffalo dude oh my god this this woman she's an older like a middle-aged white woman um and it's in shorewood which is like a city adjacent suburb of milwaukee um and she blocked the protest with her car and then got out and when the activists were mad that she was blocking their path She spit in a young (gasps) black man's face, like basically a child. He was not an adult.
0: Oh my God. Um, She spit in his face.
2: But then she called the police because she felt afraid. Um, And luckily that given how much like the press was there, this was all recorded. It's very high profile. It was just in TMZ, um, comrade TMZ over there. (laughs) So... um, But the police came, and they picked her up and arrested her, but they didn't book her because of worries about coronavirus. Um, But anyways, like, that's just an example of how entitled she felt to very quickly be like, I'm afraid, come protect me, state violence.
0: Yeah, well, I watched this video, um, just, like, speaking of white women calling the police, obviously there are countless examples, but I watched this video yesterday that there was... um, black woman sitting like on a park bench and she was the one that like made the video and this white woman like comes over to her and asked her if she lived in the neighborhood and she was like yes and then the white woman was like I don't know like and all the prior events were on film but basically the white woman calls the police to say that she was feeling unsafe and the black woman was like I live here I'm not doing anything I'm sitting on this bench and like the white woman's like, now she's threatening me. She's filming me. She won't get the camera out of my face. I feel threatened, blah, blah, blah. And so then, like, I guess the cops came to the park, but they didn't actually get out of the car till like I go over to the bench. And then the white woman asked the black woman if she will walk over with her to the police. Oh and my God, the my black gosh. woman's just like, What the fuck? Like, no, I'm not <laughs> coming with you to the police. <laughs> so just fucking insanity. Oh
2: God. listening to you tell that story makes me think about how like it's the you know that we keep us safe kind of a mantra and because we know as women there are times when you genuinely feel unsafe especially when we talk about rape mm-hmm. um and assault but like i i also think that the like fascism and state monopolies on violence serve to like decentivize women to learn self-defense to learn like kind of community defense or like even just like things like looking for a way out, like it, it really makes people victims. And your only option is state violence. And I just that's so dangerous.
1: Yeah, for sure. (sighs) Yeah, in Buffalo, of course, we had the 75 year old man who was pushed, white man, sorry, pushed to the ground. um, And blood like comes out his ears. It's like all over the internet. It's bad. But I get really frustrated because I can already see how much more people are paying attention to this than like the much more gruesome violence that's happening against black people every day like it's hard because it's one of those things that's like yes it might be motivating people to be part of Black Lives Matter or like start their anti-fascist work but I it makes me nervous that it's Because they noticed someone they perceived to be, quote, frail being affected by state violence when, like, let's remember Tamir Rice was 12 years old. Um, And Breonna
0: Taylor was asleep in her bed. Right.
1: Like, like, it's just like these. And so on and so on. Right. Of course. Like, these concepts of frail like i think we need to be very cautious around like why it might bother someone more to see an old man being pushed than some of the these other things so
0: yeah i did i saw this tweet that i just pulled up while you were talking because i wanted to attribute it and the it it went viral people probably saw it it's at absurdist words though is the at it's um a black man and the tweet is White people have been treated like black people by the police for a week and suddenly every state is pondering defunding, pondering, defunding cops. This is what it takes every damn time. So, yeah, just like to your point that, you know, uh, white people specifically like interpret videos of violence against white people a lot different than like all the videos we see of violence against black people and people of color.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to also talk about... um the parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestinian occupation movement or the freedom of Palestinians from occupation movement, rather. Um, And so I think it's important to think about, like, where have we seen this type of stuff before? Where can we learn from people So, I thought, like, I wanted to first talk about how Palestinians not only live under an occupation, but they also experience apartheid, just like in South Africa. So, now many of us could argue that our deeply segregated nation is a, like, an apartheid light, and, like, what do I mean by this? Well, in Palestine, it shows up with many fascist laws, like curfews in certain areas, and very restricted movements And the places we have curfews are now in urban areas um, and there's, of course, higher rates of people of color and particularly black people. And uh, in those communities, even before these curfews, obviously the over-policing, the presence of police, the presence of monitoring all movements, um, that sort of stuff has a lot of similarities between what's happening in black communities and Palestine. Secondly, uh, the same weaponry that's used by the Israeli Defense Forces or the IDF is used by the U.S. police. Um, And so I wanted to read a small part from this book called Shell Shocked on the Ground Under Israel's Gaza Assault. So it's by this guy named Mohammed Omer and... He essentially is writing about his experience in Gaza. Um, this war is more than blood. It's psychological and emotional torture, expertly designed to strike an already marginalized group and reduce us to less than human. There are differences between local and international journalism. The local variety needs no wider conce- context, just the images of of human carnage sorry and desperation is enough we know the context and history we live it international media needs to answer more questions and add historical context accuracy and truth are vital i say it i see a unrwa school used as a refugee shelter being hit But I will ask people affected by those circumstances for their story on the American-supplied Israeli F-16 drones, Apache helicopters, Israeli tanks, cruise missiles, naval warships, and mortar shells. Yes, where the weapons come from needs to be stated. U.S. media reports Israeli claims that Iran supplies Gaza with weapons, but never mentions who supplies Israel in Gaza we're still looking for those Iranian weapons that Israel says we have what Gaza factions have are small weapons and homemade rockets what the israeli ha- what the israelis have is state of the art american military equipment so <laughs> uh i think when we're talking when we're thinking about the the heavy amount of mat- military grade police Uh, policing that are happening across the country that is the same type of weaponry that is being used against palestinians um third we literally have a president calling those of us in the rebellion terrorists for fighting for black lives and palestinians and many other arab states as well are called terrorists at all this time for defending themselves um you know i i have a a friend in Palestine who kind of describes it like this to um, some of her uh, Israeli friends. Uh, She'll say, you know, it's like someone can be stepping on your toe and you might not like be that upset you might just be like hey man can you get off my toe and then they can like step on it harder and you can be like okay what the heck are you doing and if they're like literally stomping on your foot with like a steel toe boot or something like you're gonna push them off of you and that's how we need to think about any type of like response that we see from the communities that are rebelling against these oppressive forces.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. Um, Switching gears um, slightly. So I was also looking through some of my books to prepare for this episode. And I have a book called Revolutionary Yiddish Land, which I would really recommend. Um, It's about like radical history of Jews. So um, there's just this story in it that I really liked and wanted to share because um, it's kind of another thing like with the Holocaust Jews are often painted as like victims and I mean which they were however a lot that is left out is that there was also a lot of like really radical organizing um, against Nazis that is like not told and Mm Um, even by Jews, I mean, I was raised going to Hebrew school multiple times a week. And like the way we we did not learn these things about the Holocaust. We learned that like we were victims and that is that. So, yeah, I just, yeah. you know, I love to read about these things. And so the story that I wanted to tell is about um, this group that was called the Resistance Council, which was a queer Dutch anti-fascist group. And it was founded by a gay artist named Wilhelm Ar. Arendus and was comprised of um, mostly if not all openly queer members and so they did a variety of different um, organizing activities but focused primarily on forging documents for Jews in Amsterdam to help them escape Nazis so initially the forged documents worked um, But then they encountered a problem when later on the documents that they were forging could be discovered as fake by cross-referencing their information with the Amsterdam public records. So in order to solve this problem, one evening, a group of people burned down the public records office, which destroyed a key resource that was being used to track down Jews. And following this act, they were convicted and sentenced to execution. But before philham's execution his final words um, to his lawyer i believe were let it be known that homosexuals are not cowards which is just like amongst the greatest last words ever spoken um obviously like that he was sent to execution is awful but right i love the ending of that story
1: (laughs) right
0: so yeah and um also Um, Kellen could not be with us today. She was not feeling well, but she did leave something for us to share. So yeah, she wanted to talk about the way that gendered reproduction is crucial to the maintenance of a fascist regime, regime, the need to eliminate those who cannot be compelled into the regime, such as um, gay and trans people and people with disabilities alongside the elimination of like the racial quote unquote other. Um, And if you don't go all all the way to elimination as many fascists do at the very least the creation and perpetuation of a terrorized underclass um and she sent me this um like infographic from instagram that i am going to read because it has some good um facts on it so i'll just read the whole thing so it says educate yourself black disabled people should never be an afterthought especially when it comes to police brutality Disabled people make up between one third and one half of all people killed by police according to multiple studies, including a 2016 study by the Ruderman Foundation. Black Americans with disabilities are even more at risk. Few make headlines. This issue is central to the black disabled community. Learn the names of black disabled victims of police violence. Advocate for measures that protect disabled people wherever you discuss police de-escalation techniques or community alternatives to policing. Remember that all Black Lives Matter, if you are not concerned with the lives of disabled people, you are not a part of the Black Lives Matter movement.
2: Oh, I have something really, really positive and exciting to share quickly. Is this a- yeah. related? Is this an okay time? Sorry. Yeah. No, go for it. So, this is really, I think it's the only or the first one that I've heard about in the country, but today, Milwaukee is doing a protest that is specifically geared towards including differently abled activists. Um, So they've been like gone out of their way to make sure that um, it's accessible for people in wheelchairs. They have extra medics around. um, They have earplugs for people if noise is a problem. And it's been really cool to see that that's a priority for protest leaders. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really important. This is something that is like reading that really hits home for me because, um, as I talked about last week on our episode with Sasha, my um half brother is black, is half black, and he um has mental disabilities, so he's nonverbal and um like, I guess uh he usually is safe because he has um aids that are with him, but like There have definitely been times, um, especially, like, when we were younger, he's significantly older than me, but that he would, like, you know, just, like, take things from a store, like, without realizing, Um, and, like, that could be very scary, and we would have to be, like, no, 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 like, uh, he doesn't know what he's doing, and yeah, so anyway, important to remember that fascists hate literally everyone who is not, like, an able-bodied cis white man,
1: fucking real um so (laughs) when we were putting this episode together I was like I really want to talk about the FBI and CIA because (laughs) not to get too tinfoil hat on y'all's ass but like literally so much (laughs) shit in the world and so many of the things that we're talking about are related to actions by the CIA and FBI (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. they just Hit do this with it
1: they just it's just the truth okay well first of all i recommend the book killing hope u.s military and cia intervention since world war ii by william blum it's super good it's really accessible um and it just like it just is like historical event after historical event after historical event that the u.s essentially carried out to completion around the world so it focuses on the cia in this book but of course, if we if, you know, we have any awareness of um, black history in America, we know that uh, the FBI is a huge reason why um, the Black Panther Party had so many struggles Um it was a huge reason why a lot of the civil rights movement had uh, to be so careful in all of these things. Um, <clears throat> you know, not And
0: why MLK m- was assassinated. Right.
1: It's like there's there's yeah, I was like the list goes on and on and on, like literally all of the leaders being assassinated one by one by one by one. Yep. Yeah. Um, So I think it's really important for us to make those connections, right? Like we are not only involved in like actually amplifying fascist regimes around the world, but we also are amplifying it at home through these two structures, the FBI and the CIA. And what I mean by that is because often when there are uh, more fascist type uh, things abroad, we can connect with them more on a capitalist level. People think that capitalism and fascism are not linked, however, they are, and that is why I love William Blum, because he puts it together so perfectly, and that's what I wanted to read, Um, because I think, obviously, as everyone listening to this is essentially a socialist or somewhere on that spectrum, uh, we, we talk about the role of capitalism in all of these things as well, so... Um, this is just at the end of his introduction, and he's, you know, talking, okay, he's essentially talking about the start of globalization, so here we go. Capital prowls the, the globe with a ravenous freedom it hasn't enjoyed since before World War I, operating free of friction, free of gravity. The world has been made safe for the transnational corporation. Will this mean any better life for the multitudes than the Cold War brought? Any more regard for the common folk than there's been since they fell off the cosmic agenda centuries ago? By all means, says Capital, offering another warmed-up version of the trickle-down theory, the principle that the poor who must subsist on table scraps dropped by the rich can best be served by giving the rich bigger meals the boys of capital they also ch- also chortle in their martinis about the death of socialism of the word that has been banned from polite conversation and they hope that no one will notice of That every socialist experiment of any significance in the 20th century, without exception, has either been crushed, overthrown, or invaded, or corrupted, perverted, subverted, or destabilized, or otherwise had life made impossible for it by the United States. Not one socialist government or movement, from the Russian Revolution to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, from communist China to the FMLN in Salvador, not one was permitted to rise or fall solely on its own merits. Not one was left to secure enough to drop its guard against the all-powerful enemy abroad and freely and fully relax control at home. It's as if the Wright brothers' first experiments with flying machines all failed because the automobile interest sabotaged each flight test, and then the good and god-fearing folk of the world looked upon this and took notice of the consequences, nodded their collective head wisely and intoned solemnly, "Man shall never fly." <laughs> You know, yeah, <laughs> he he's just like the best. But essentially, like, I think it's important to note that like being anti-capitalist means being anti-fascist um, and these things are really linked. And, and he he was pointing that out, like the reason why the CIA is all over the fucking place is so that it's in the best capitalist interests of the United States. Mm hmm. Oh, and then the last thing I wanted to say about my tinfoil hat shit is that the FBI (laughs) did issue a warning about the security risk presented by infiltration groups like the KKK into enforcement agencies in 2006, so 14 years ago, like this is, and that it wasn't new information then, of course, but there's a literal report by the FBI, which like, A, is like confusing because of what the FBI does, but whatever, <laughs> it literally is there. Um, and so we've known for 14 years that the actual KKK is infiltrating police departments, so... There's literally no, like, the FBI knew. Well, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that the, that the FBI knew about it because they knew about it. And, of course, nothing has been done about it at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I think we're getting close to an hour, but one of the things that I wanted to read so – um The zine that I have mentioned, the author writes, at the end of it, in her conclusion, she writes a list of lessons that can be learned from her research of historical anti-fascist organizing and how to work towards a feminist anti-fascism. And the zine, I think, was 2017, Mm. um, but very uh, very apt tips for today. So... Yeah, just gonna read the list. So, number one, conceptualize anti-fascist resistance broadly and engage in multi-layered struggle, embrace variety of organizing strategies and tactics, and move away from the tendency the tendency to look at anti-fascist struggle in terms of a hierarchical ranking in which certain forms of activity, example, combat, slash fighting, involvement in formal political organization, et cetera, are placed at the top and all other forms of activity, example, public education, labor and community organizing, surveillance and info gathering, providing supplies, et cetera, are seen as secondary. Very apt, as I said.
1: Yes,
0: for real. (laughs) Number two. (laughs) Um, If we want to develop a strong movement, we cannot focus almost exclusively on physical activities and or traditionally male-dominated spaces. It's important to have spaces, roles, and activities that account for the variety and diversity of social life. For example, considering things like ability and age, a vibrant movement would have a place for a two-year-old child all the way up to an 82-year-old grandparent. Number three, do not associate particular types of activities with particular bodies. Go against the tendency to associate women with passivity and nonviolence. It is crucial to recognize that combative politics is not exclusively the domain of men. Women, queer people, and trans folks have always been involved in armed uprisings and coordinated attacks, but typically get left out of the narrative. Number four, couple anti-fascist politics with feminism and conceptualize gender liberation as a non-negotiable component of anti-fascism. This means centering gender considerations, taking trans politics and queer struggles seriously, and not treating these things as peripheral concerns. Number five. Look to and draw from other anti-racist and anti-colonial resistance traditions, and not just those most commonly associated with anti-fascism. Popular accounts of anti-fascist history privilege Europe and disproportionately focus on white actors. The prototypical anti-fascist hero is presented not only as a male, but as white, ignoring all other histories. There is an incredibly long legacy of Black and Indigenous struggle. However, it is often overlooked and goes unrecognized, as Hope was saying. And yeah, girl, lastly, you should have just six. read this at the beginning and we could have wrapped up in like five minutes. <laughs> it's so good. And <laughs> yeah, the last one, number six. The last insight is to connect anti fascism with more ambitious revolutionary goals. Anti fascism, in and of itself, is a necessarily limited struggle. It is a reactive and defensive movement that, while incredibly important, is much more of a jumping off point than a desired end destination. In the past, many groups rooted their anti-fascist work in a commitment to revolution and pushed for broader vision to collective liberation and societal transformation. Anti-fascism is not a single struggle, but an overlapping set of struggles taking place simultaneously. It is an anti-fascist war, but also a civil war and a class war fighting for sweeping social, political, and economic change. Woo! The end.
2: (laughs) yeah this could have been our first eight minute episode
0: (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we shared
2: some shit along the way we did that was but that was really good that was so good yeah 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 that that last point is so important too like you know you can't can't just be defined by what you're against you've got to be imagining and thinking about what you want to build yeah absolutely yeah
0: yeah i went back and forth on reading it in the beginning or the end but then i was like it's just such a nice conclusion and just leaves people with yeah for sure go go do it (laughs) go make it happen
2: yeah no i feel that uh that's our episode thank you for listening um the usual kind of stuff you can uh join our patreon and support us and then hang out with us when we do like fun watching movies together and stuff and our Um, books our reading club
1: we're, our abolition rating club will be through the Patreon too sorry
2: that's fine um, yeah our website is seasonofthebee.com I think we've still got some merch up there um, and most importantly uh, support your black friends uh, monetarily check in on people um, and if you don't have any black friends reflect on that yes so I think <laughs> I think that's it um, yes. thanks for listening love you guys love you so much thank you bye, bye. bye. the bitch.